0: Well, please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter. As we continue our exposition of Luke's Gospel, we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter nine, and we will consider the first six verses this morning. Thus far, we have seen Jesus's ministry, and now we are going to see the expansion of that ministry begin as he begins to send laborers into the harvest to multiply the ministry That he has begun. And so now, with that, let us turn our attention to the reading of God's word once again. These are the words of God Luke chapter 9. Let us hear them and receive them as the words of God. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when ye go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet, for a testimony against them. And they departed, and went through the towns, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come now to the word of God as it is preached. And we pray now for your minister who will preach that even as Jesus has sent him into the harvest, he would faithfully proclaim the gospel, even as those first disciples did as they went everywhere preaching the good news of Christ and Come to save sinners. Give your spirit, Father, the spirit of Christ to the minister now as he preaches. And may that same spirit be upon all those who will now hear the words of life as they are proclaimed. Help the minister preach nothing but the truth. We have heard that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So help the minister preach Christ. And may all here who are assembled receive Christ today. Those who do not know him, Father, give them faith to believe that their sins may be forgiven. And those who do believe, Father, may you strengthen their faith as many are crying out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. In all this, Father, to those holy ends, we pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of the congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the great and terrible judgments on a land is when the sound of the gospel is taken away from it. A land that has the gospel preached to it, then ignored, and then the Lord withdrawing His ministers from them. And there is a terrible Silence in its place because the gospel trumpet no longer sounds. Have you ever really thought on how awful that is for a place to not have the preaching of Christ and him crucified for sinners? What that really means, friends, is not just that the sound of the words of life are out of place, but really that Christ has ceased to extend mercy to that place. That's what that is, and that's a chilling thought, that Christ has ceased to proclaim mercy and clemency to a place. No longer giving men and women the chance to repent and to turn away from their sins and turn to Him for eternal life. What He is doing is He is removing His mercy and compassion from such a place. But on the other hand, right when Jesus sends gospel heralds, when he sends ministers into a place, into a city, what he is actually doing is he is extending mercy and compassion and clemency to that place. And that is how we have to see the sending of men into the harvest. Christ manifesting his compassion by sending men to it. And if we would see that, If we would see that, friends, what a heart we would have to send men into the harvest. What a sense we would have to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Oh God, so many are perishing and are not hearing the words of eternal life. So many will be confirmed in their sin. Lord of the harvest, would you send men into the harvest, into the fields, and that the towns they enter would not harden their hearts but have their hearts open to receive Christ. That they would lay hold of Christ just like that woman did at the end of the last chapter. That they might have the gift of everlasting life and that they might live to the glory of God. You see, we have really very little care to pray to the Lord of the harvest or to send laborers or to raise up laborers. Because we have little thought for what Christ is doing in the proclamation of the gospel and sending men into the field. Not men that they might earn a living doing a kind of career. This is the problem in so much of the institutional church. Hasn't it been? Well, I can choose to be a lawyer and I can choose to be a doctor and I can choose to be a minister. And all these things perhaps might supply my family's needs. That's not why men are sent They are sent to extend the mercy and compassion of Christ to a dying generation. And so, if we would understand that, we would understand the theme of this text, which is that out of His pity for the perishing, Christ sends men to preach the gospel. Out of His pity for the perishing, Christ sends men to preach the gospel. And we'll consider that under three heads. First is that Christ sends, that's where we'll spend most of our time, Second, Christ supplies. And third, and really soberly, Christ sentences. He passes judgment on certain places. First, Christ sends. Let's consider the greater context of here, the ninth chapter of Luke. This chapter is, if you are familiar with the gospel account of Luke, a a turning point in Luke's accounting. What he notes here later in the chapter is that Jesus is about to set his face to the cross. Scan down to verse 51 if you have your Bible open. Look at verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Our Savior knows that the cross is coming. He knows that he will die. He knows he will be resurrected and received up in heaven. And he sets his face To meet it all in Jerusalem. Also, what you find here then is that the Lord is not ignorant of the plan of salvation. He knows exactly why he was sent into the world. He knows what his mission is. He was not suddenly overtaken, boys and girls, by Judas's betrayal. Like, where did this come from? He he was not taken unaware by the Jews' plots and Pilate's cowardice. This is all according to plan. He knew what was coming that he was the man prophesied of in Isaiah 50, verses 6 to 7. And listen to this carefully. Uh, and this is why Isaiah, uh, his prophecy is often called the fifth gospel. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. And listen to this and think of verse 51. Verse 51. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Will you give glory to God for Jesus Christ? He gave his back to the smiters willingly so that they could gouge it and tear it apart so that his body would be broken and bleed. He gave them his cheeks so that they would rip the hair off of it. He did not hide his face from their mockery and from their cruel spit and spittle, but he set his face like a flint to meet it all. He knew all of this lay before him. It was in his book. It was in Isaiah. He himself decreed this as God. And knowing it then in Luke's gospel here, we find in this chapter, him setting his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to face all of that. Why? Well, Hebrews 12, of course, says he endured it all, despised the shame of it all for the joy that was set before him. The joy of saving you who believe his bride from your sins, an eternity together with him in glory, along, of course, with the joy of his exaltation, as in Psalm 110, his ascension and session at God's right hand. But these are the things that our Lord willingly undertook to save us. And we must give Him glory. We must praise Him. We must worship Him. How is it that our, our mourning, as we saw in our call to worship in Psalm 30, is turned to joy? It's because our Lord Jesus Christ purposed to be beaten, smitten, afflicted, and killed in our place. And so the cross is really casting its shadow over our text and over the remainder of the gospel. Our Lord has on his mind now at this time, his death, resurrection and ascension. And what we see in this text is him preparing for ministry, the ministry to continue on earth after he ascends into heaven, that even as he reigns right now from heaven above by the Holy Spirit's power on earth, the ministry would continue to ingather his sheep, to bring in his elect and gather them from the four corners of the earth. It begins here by sending 12 apostles and then after them, ordinary ministers of the gospel like myself. These 12 here are ordained and sent by Christ to continue his work filled with the Holy Spirit uh, after the time that he is at God's right hand. Now, all this time you have noticed since they're calling, since he called the, the 12 from Luke chapter 6, you notice that they have been with him, Right? They have learned at the feet of Jesus the ministry. He took them everywhere except for when he was in private prayer. And so now with many lessons learned from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says their time has come. They have learned the lesson. And now he sends them into the mission field. So even as he looked to his decease, and ensuring that the ministry would continue by the labors of these gospel laborers, it's still worth recognizing the deep motivations of the Lord in sending them out. Uh, we often, I think we often are in the habit of seeing the Lord's work, but very rarely understanding his deeper motives behind them all, that we would give glory to him for not, not just seeing the work, but the heart behind the work. In Matthew's parallel account of this, we find his motivation. Consider what transpired in the Lord's heart before he sends out his disciples. Matthew nine thirty six through 38. Actually, yeah. Um, but when he saw the multitudes, right? He sees the multitudes of people. He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. His heart is moved by the plight of his people. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. His compassion, friends. His compassion. That's why he sends out gospel laborers. It moves our Lord. And what a thing that is. When he sees his sheep as having no shepherd. He, he sees them going astray, right? This is what sheep without a shepherd do, boys and girls, right? They go astray. Uh, they don't stick to the straight and narrow path. And when it comes to us spiritually, we don't know the path that leads to eternal life. We don't know the narrow way that leads to eternal blessedness. And so what does he do? Out of his compassion, he sends laborers as under shepherds to gather his people and lead them to himself. It's the very same compassion, isn't it, that moves him to the cross, as was foretold, right? We are all like sheep, which have gone astray, aren't we? We have turned every one to his own way. And because of that, what is the Lord's action? And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, it's the same compassion. He sees us as sheep going astray. He knows we must be reclaimed. He has pity and mercy. And so he comes into the world. And it's that same pity and mercy that sends him to the cross that's looming over our very text that also has him send men into the harvest to gather his sheep. Do you not find so many tokens of the Lord's love and compassion for you, believer, when you open your Bible? Not only at the cross. But even in sending out preachers of the gospel, I remember, I still remember vividly the pastor who first preached to me the words of life. What was he? And I haven't reflected on this as I ought to have for so long. But he was a token of the Lord's compassion on me as a wayward sinner to preach to me that I am a sinner, I have left the narrow path, and I need a Savior who will cleanse me from all my unrighteousness, and that all I have to do is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I would be saved from all my iniquity. That is the Lord's pity and mercy to me, a sinner. Our blessed Lord Jesus has compassion on us in such great ways. Give glory to God, friends. All of you here can do this. Give glory to God that you have heard the gospel preached. Not everyone will. You know, you talk about privilege. There is privilege, friends. That is a privilege that not everyone has. If you had nothing else in your life, the very fact that you can say, God has shown me the good news of the gospel is all the privilege that you ought to embrace not everyone will hear it, and no one deserves to hear it. That's the thing, friends. No one deserves to hear it, and yet you have. What's that worth to you? How thankful are you, are, for, uh, are you for that, that he has sent men to preach the gospel, and you were given faith to believe it? That's the Lord's love, and it's unfathomable if we would think of it that way. Now, as we come back to his sending... A bit of theology here as well to understand why he does it. Uh, You are also noticing the limitations. And sometimes, boys and girls, we don't like to say that when it comes to Jesus. But he has limitations in his human nature. He does. You are seeing the limitations of Jesus' human natures that necessitated sending out these men. In his human nature, boys and girls, think on this carefully. How many places can our Lord Jesus Christ be in one time? He can only be in one Because he's truly a human, just like us. And this is what makes him like us in his human nature. I can't be in more than one place at a time. Neither can he be bodily in one place, more than one place at a time. And this actually, for a bit of uh, theology, this distinguishes the Reformed from our Lutheran brothers, right? They believe that Christ's human nature is ubiquitous, meaning it can be everywhere. It could be anywhere. And it can be bodily present therefore in the lord's supper right you are actually feasting on him bodily in the lord's supper because his human nature can be ubiquitous but if that were so the problem with that is it, then the human nature is taking on properties of the divine nature and that that would then violate the fact that his two natures are distinct and what is proper to each is done by each okay our human nature can be present In only one place. He has a true body and a reasonable soul. And even here you find the same principle in action. The Lord doesn't multiply himself to send himself into all the towns. He sends out 12 disciples. And so to ingather all these sheep that he is moved with compassion for. It necessitates him to send out 12 men into the field. And today as many gospel ministers as there are in this time and place. And yet at the same time, he is still present in the preaching of the word, not through his divinity, but through, not through his humanity, but through his divinity, such that when the minister preaches in the spirit of Christ, it is Christ himself who is speaking to you. And it is Christ himself who is present, but in divinity and not bodily. That's why Jesus in his humanity is not standing here. But we trust that by the Holy Spirit in his divinity, he is ministering to us even now. Okay, so with that then, to understand why it is that he uses the means of men, let's consider the calling and sending of these 12. Before the Lord sent them, he gave them authority. Verse 1, Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them, grants them, power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Now, he gives his disciples power over demons and power to cure diseases. Now, what's always interesting when you see that is, did anybody have to give Jesus that power and authority? No. He has it as God, but he must grant this power to his apostles to work the power and works of God. Now, it's also worth reminding ourselves that this was the apostolic era. This is the era of true apostles, not phony apostles like today. These are the apostles sent to form the foundation of Christ's church. And these miraculous signs, these miracles, are not given to ordinary ministers of the gospel today. My ordination and the ordination of any gospel minister does not convey the power and ability to cure disease. And this is obvious to see, right? When you see Paul instruct Timothy... Does he give him any instruction on casting out disease and demons? No. But what was his exhortation? Give yourself to preaching. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And you would think then if there was an ongoing ministry of miracles. That Paul would tell Timothy. Do work miracles. Your ordination has given you that power and right. But he doesn't. So. Preaching is at the forefront of the ministry. And that aspect of the ministry, even in Christ's time, is what is at the forefront. These miracles, as you heard last week, they established the legitimacy of the message they preached at that time. Consider, though, what had primacy in Christ's ministry in sending them. Verse 2, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. What's primary? Preaching the kingdom of God. Healing serves as a confirmatory sign of it. As you noted, as we noted last week, right? Your eyes cannot see the cure of sin. But what confirms that sin is cured is the healing of the sick. Right? Uh, remember when uh, he healed the man with palsy that you may know the son of man has the power to forgive sins. Arise. It confirms the gospel message. And I thought it was very interesting, and I meditated on this for a while, because we don't often do it. Have you ever considered the nature of the miracles the Lord and his apostles worked? It's very important to do so. You know, rarely do we appreciate that his miracles communicate something of what the gospel is. You know, almost like the sacraments today, like the water, of course, of baptism communicates something, a picture of, of the cleansing and washing away of sin, doesn't it? But these miracles are the same way. What were his miracles? He makes the lame walk. He makes the blind see. He casts unclean spirits out of men. He heals the sick. These miracles are not destructive. They are restorative, aren't they, friends? They make men whole. And that is a picture, an outward sign, of what the gospel does to the heart of men. He's not just showing power for the sake of showing power. He could do that, couldn't he? Right. He could cause a violent storm to erupt right then and there. He could cause fire to come down out of heaven and say, look, believe the gospel. But he doesn't. He does miracles that communicate the nature of the gospel. His miracles are chosen to show he is the great physician that restores men. To see the contrast, actually, I thought this was very interesting, later in the chapter, verses 54 through 56. Uh, Many of you remember this uh, with a bit of perhaps amusement, but also a sense in which they didn't understand what Jesus was doing. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, this is going through Samaria, right? They said, "'Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did?' But he turned and rebuked them and said, "'Ye know not what manner of spirit you're of.'" "'Why?' For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. You see, the miracles that he works are not just to show that he is who he is, but they also show that he's come to save men's lives. That he's come to restore them and not destroy them at this time. They communicate the essence of the good news. Christ has come into the world to save Sinners. And this, I think, is very helpful when you evaluate the so-called miracle workers of today, whether they're charismatic or Catholic. You can evaluate their miracles with this one measure. Is the biblical gospel preached in its fullness? Uh, is sin being preached against and the Savior being extolled? And then these miracles in some way show that uh, uh, in a, a tangible form. Or are they things like statues weeping, cold readings, right? And, and other parlor tricks with no gospel being preached, but instead some message that tickles men's ears. You can very quickly see the difference between apostolic ministry and those of charlatans today. If you understood the nature of Christ's miracles to show us that the Son of Man has come into the world to save lives, it's very easy to discern whether a man's miracles are true or a sham. But with the apostles gone and the Bible complete, ministers are not given the power to perform miracles today. And they'll have to leave that there for that bit of doctrine. Okay, the next thing as we carry on is to observe in our text that Christ sends these men himself. They don't just decide, well, you know what would be a great idea? Maybe I should go and I heard Jesus preach this gospel and maybe I'll go into the town and I'll I'll do the same. No, in verse 2, it says he sent them. And the word sent, and you might know this, boys and girls, is the verb form for apostle. Uh, We get our word apostle out of the word uh, verb to be sent. And that's what an apostle is. One who is sent by the Lord. You know, the apostles were officially commissioned by our Lord and then sent out. And today, that's what a man's ordination is. It's an official action of being sent on behalf of the king. It's done today, though. Of course, Jesus is in here bodily. We heard that last week. We heard that just earlier. But he does that through the use of presbyteries. First Timothy 4.14, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. That's how laborers are sent into the harvest today, into the field. They receive a commission from the Lord that is recognized by the church. They evaluate the man, they evaluate his gifts. They themselves have an official commission to do it. And they recognize him, and then they lay their hands on him, recognizing that this one is sent by God to go preach the gospel. And that's very important for us, in order to have, be under men who are confirmed in that way, and then sent officially. Men who are running without being sent are guilty of, say, Jeremiah twenty three twenty one. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Right. If you've ever been tempted to run without being sent, think on these things and seek ordination through the means of a presbytery. And that official action then of Christ sending men to preach the gospel distinguishes both the activity of such men and their office from other members of the church who are not sent for that purpose. And I thought, what a wonderful way Luke has laid out this gospel, isn't it? You think on the demoniac, And the woman with the issue of blood, they were witnesses for Christ just in the last end of the last chapter, weren't they? But now distinguished from that witnessing is the official proclamation of the gospel by the 12. A very different work. These 12 are heralds of the gospel. And that's what preaching means, to herald. Such men, in other words, are officially sent by the Lord as his ambassadors with power given them to preach hell and heaven, and, as you think on Luke 14, which we'll get to one day, to compel men to come in, forcefully. Not with arms, right, but by the Holy Spirit's power. On the other hand, every Christian has the calling to tell others of the Lord. There's plenteous examples, the demoniac, the Samaritan woman, and so on. But when it comes to preaching and acting as Christ's herald with authority, when you think of the imperatives of preaching, right? Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. That kind of official activity where a man stands up and says that, this is what you must do. Be reconciled to God, Acts 3.19. That comes from a commission of the Lord through the laying of hands of a presbyterian. But yet, both the unordained and the ordained can work together, can't they? And the Lord works beautifully through that. You know, our times as a congregation in public evangelism is a wonderful example of that, isn't it? The minister preaches and the congregation witnesses and testifies to passers-by, handing out tracts, speaking of the hope that they have of eternal life and showing them in the Bible what God has to say. Even as the man with the official gospel trumpet, so to speak, is blaring out the gospel saying, repent and turn to the Lord for forgiveness. This is what you must do. So in that way, you see the distinction here in just uh, basically the space of a chapter between the force of preaching and that of the non-commissioned Christian. The minister compels and commands, but the regular Christian is to evangelize, though they do not preach. Well, with that understanding then, Jesus supplied his apostles as well with the content of their preaching, which we ought to pay attention to. In Matthew 10, Luke actually has the one of the shorter accounts of this. So in Matthew 10, verses 7 through 8, he says, As ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. You can put that together with Mark chapter 6, verse 12. And they went out and preached that men should repent. What you're seeing here is the continuation of the ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and now the apostles, and then to the ministers, ordinary ministers of the gospel. It's the same message. The gospel has not changed. It is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sin. Turn away from your evil doing, right? This is the, the timeless message of the gospel. It is what Jesus preached. It is what his apostles preached. And it is what ministers must preach. But he, you, they preach, turn from your sin. But where do you turn to? Where do you turn to? That's what repentance means. Turn away from one thing and turn to something else. Where do you turn to? You turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Isn't this why he said, what? Freely ye have received, freely give. What did you receive freely? The forgiveness of your sins. You have received me. And now you must go and take that same message. Christ and all his benefits freely given to the world. In that, what you also understand is ministers do not charge anything for salvation. Freely, You have received freely you give. What did Peter say in the Acts? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. It is the calling of the ministry to simply and freely give Christ to all. Again, the free offer of the gospel is in view. Salvation not earned, salvation not purchased, not with filthy lucre and not with works, but free for the giving and free for the taking. And if you've never heard that, friend, that is the gospel. You don't come here and you don't give money in order to purchase anything from God. You don't come here saying, God, this past week, I have done so many good things. Will you give me salvation? Freely it is given and freely we give to you as well through the words of life. All you have to do is take Christ freely and believe on him. Well, with that... Let's consider our next heading, which is that Christ supplies. And in this vein, well, all this sending of his men, as we heard, was in view of Jesus preparing for his decease. And, deceased. and if that concerned him, let me say as a point of application, that has to concern us as well. You know, this church and the church as a whole must prepare for the decease of her ministers, and her elders, her officers, and always ask the question, who will be next in line to take up the work? Who will come next? Men, see if the Lord is calling you, especially for the ministry, but also for the other offices of elder and deacon. Paul told Timothy, and this is for us elders to consider, but I think the congregation as a whole should, uh, whole should. And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Second 2 Timothy 2. two. So let me ask, where are the faithful men? Where are the faithful men that we can commit such things to? All of us, I have to prepare for my decease. The elders have to prepare for our decease as well. We have said from the beginning that this must be a church for generations to come, God willing. And we must prepare for the next generation. Where are the men with the compassion and gifts? Compassion for the sheep and the gifts to proclaim the gospel. Where are the men who will wholly give themselves to the ministry to herald the gospel to the next generation to come? I'll just ask might there be some men here? Are there some boys even here, like Samuel, who can give themselves, right? Who sense maybe the Lord as Eli instructed him? Lord, speak, for thy servant heareth. Are there any here who might say, Here I am, here am I, send me. Are there mothers and fathers even willing to consecrate their sons to the Lord? Just as Hannah did, who made a vow. You give me a son, I will send him to your service. You know, this was often done in times past. That wasn't just for Hannah. Fathers and mothers so desirous of the Lord's work, so enraptured by the gospel that they have heard from the lips of a gospel minister, that they have vowed to the Lord, if you give me sons, I will send them into the ministry if you will have them. They often prayed that. You remember John G. Payton's father vowed to the Lord, if you give me sons, Lord, I will send them to the ministry if you will have them. And there is his son who is sent to the mission field and converts by by God's help. Uh, You find that the, the, the cannibals are converted because he vowed to the Lord that he would give his son to the Lord. And he did. And I will just say, God's people today have such rarely had the sentiment to devote their children to God in this way. But what has happened? It's because we don't. We don't value what the Lord does through his labors. And if we don't value it, we ourselves will not commit to it and we will not send others to it. In any case, the Lord has said, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send labors. And in that, make it a regular part of your prayers, beloved. You yourself may never be a minister. You may never have children and you may never send them into the ministry. But you can certainly be on your knees and pray. If you want the, lo- the world to be turned upside down as it was in the time of the apostles, pray for more laborers to go into the world. The Lord promises that he will send them if we would pray. The world will change. The world will turn to the Lord as men preach the everlasting gospel. When it comes to these 12 and their provision, verse 3 says, He said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, that boys and girls means walking sticks, nor scrip, meaning bag, Neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. What this has the sense of is that they are to travel light. They're not to load up their bags with goods and money and basically say, well, I'm going to have enough that'll keep me good for the next two months or so. They were to exercise trust in the Lord. Trust in what? That the Lord would give them provision in the midst of their labors. Uh, to our words in Luke, Matthew adds something helpful to interpret the verse. For the workman is worthy of his meat or food. Right? They as gospel laborers, they don't charge for salvation, but their labors make them worthy of being fed by others to be supported. They're not peddlers of the word. They don't charge, but they are worthy of being supported, not as a precondition to give salvation to others, but to support their ministry. Paul expressed this as the Lord's will in 1 Corinthians 9.14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. If you ever wondered why we pray, pay ministers, that's why. So that they, like the Levites, can live off the ministry and devote themselves to the labor. But what I would say here is, we even talked about a bit of a challenge of men who might sense a call to ministry. What the Lord is teaching you men is don't worry about your provision. Every man I know that has pursued the call, the Lord has cared for and supplied his needs. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God that provides. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. Now, every Christian ought to take comfort in that. The Lord has provision aplenty for you, believer. He says, as we prayed, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will supply all your needs. But especially those that labor for the Lord must not care. Uh, I don't mean that in a flippant way. Must not have this anxiety over their daily provision. Do you not believe, child of God, that if you labor for the sake of his cause, he will provide? Is he unable to provide? Is he unable to even set a table in the wilderness? He is able. He is able. And so this is what his disciples had to trust in. Could you imagine? They are being sent, right, as sort of the vanguard after Christ himself into towns with a very unpopular message And they have to trust, I don't take anything with me, but my trust that the Lord will provide for me. What a thing that is. But this is what he says to do. I saw it even just personally at the seminary. Men who came from other countries with nothing, all their needs were taken care of. You know, you might say miraculously. And I think on even our own family. Uh, You know, when I sensed a call to the ministry and I was laboring in the video game business, working six to 80 hours, and I sensed the call of God, but... At the same time, I'm asking, Lord, would you provide a, a job for me where I can actually study and, and uh, go to seminary? And he miraculously opened up a, an avenue where I could have my own business. This is the Lord who provides when you seek to do his will. James 4.3 reminds us, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. What's the implication there, friends, beloved? In every case, not just ministers. If you ask a right, brethren, if you ask for the sake of his kingdom and his righteousness, with right motives, with right causes, he will give. That's not a charismatic doctrine. That's just basic Christianity. Mark 6, verse 7, reveals that he also did not send his men out one at a time. Instead, he began to send them forth by two and two. And I think this is helpful for us, especially when we look to the future, Lord willing and church planning, because this is what this kind of endeavor is. Why does he send them out two by two? Well, there's several reasons for that. I'll give you a couple. First is that the law says what? That every matter is established by two or three witnesses, right? Their witness is greatly enhanced when it's not just one man preaching Christ crucified, but two who can witness to the truth of the matter. Second, The men will be a help to each other. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And this is key. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. This is an area I am convinced Reformed churches must grapple with, Protestants, I think, as a whole must grapple with. Because too often in missions, what do we do? We send the lone ranger out, don't we? The one man and maybe his family goes with him. But we don't go strength from strength to strength. We find men who are overworked without help. A man gets sick on the field and he is out of commission. And he doesn't have the strength of multiple men preaching the truth of the matter. And so many of their families suffer. I saw this even in home missions all the time. But Jesus sends out two laborers together. And some might say in kind of a pragmatic way, well, Jesus, what you've done is you've halved the, the reach of the gospel. Instead of 12 towns, now only six will be witnessed to. But what our Lord did, again, He is compassionate and He is kind as He set up His men for success. He set them up for success. And as we consider church planting in DFW, we have to think of these same things. We might want to call another man here as we consider planting another congregation so that there will be two here laboring in the same field instead of one. Won't dwell on that. Maybe I'll preach on that another time. Well, he gives this curious command in verse 4. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, so stay there, and from there depart, meaning going to another place, after you are done with your work here. And this speaks of something that is very neglected today in so many spheres, which is the idea of focus. Kind of a focused ministry here, right? Don't be restless. You have your place, you focus on it, and then when you are done, then you leave. Devote yourself to this house, establish your presence, let others know where to find you. Don't cast a longing eye. Well, that house over there might have more people visit it, right? You can think of all the temptations that come into a person, into a man. So, well, that house is a bit more wealthy. Maybe there are more important people that seem to come there. No, he says you stick to the house, establish your base of operations, and don't go. And when you sense your ministry in the town is finished, whether they embrace the gospel or reject it, then, only then, you leave, and then you go to the next town. Christ knows men. Are often tempted to, in ministry, to leave before they should. You look at men who are often jumping from pulpit to pulpit all the time. And often you see, you know, the sad thing in rural churches often is that these are the places where are almost like incubators for men out of seminary. Well, I can't get the big call, so I'll go to this little town. And then when I'm able to, I'll leave. That is contrary to what our Lord would have them do. John Ryland once wrote to John Newton asking for advice. He said, I feel like God is calling me to this larger congregation. Should I take it? And Newton's response was very insightful and I think very convicting. He said something like this. He says something like this, and I'll paraphrase. You know, it's very strange in my time. I always seem to find that God is always calling men to congregations with more money. He said, but if you stay, we'll show your flock your affection for them. And so Ryland stayed and took that advice. But I would say more generally, young people, stick to things until you are finished. Do not get bored easily and get restless. Solomon said, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Ecclesiastes 7.8. Don't be restless. Finish what you begin. This is what the Lord would have you do. Well, with that, let's conclude with Christ's Sentences. Christ's Sentences meaning he judges. Verse 5, And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. Now, we're so far removed from this, I think, that we might not understand what he signifies by this action. But the interpretation is in the text. It is in the words for a testimony against them. In this action, now I'll explain a bit what that action is and where its root comes from, but in that action, the shaking of dust off the feet, that is judgment being signified. That this place has been judged by God, condemned for not receiving clemency. And this action of shaking the dust off the feet was a Jewish practice. This is the root of it. And to understand it, I think, really shows the gravity of what Christ is telling them to do. And really, uh, it was a sign of the times. It's not a universal sign. It's a sign of the times because of the Jewish mind. This became a habit of the Jews when they came back from Gentile cities. They would shake the dust off their feet so that that dust of the Gentiles would not defile their holy land. Perhaps an unbiblical application of Deuteronomy thirteen seventeen, where they were told to rid themselves of whatever is in the accursed cities of Canaan, and there shall cleave not or nothing of the cursed thing or the cursed cities to thine hand. Basically, they didn't want anything from the accursed cities, right? God told them at the time of the conquest of Canaan, don't let anything, meaning really, at the end of the day, none of their practices, right? This is really what he's signifying. Don't bring anything. Don't import. Don't syncretize anything. And, of course, as the Jews tended to do in their traditions at the time of Christ, is they create a whole tradition around that. The shaking of dust from the feet. Nothing uh, should cling to us as we come out of the Gentile cities. And so listen to what they say in their tradition. This is not the word of God. This is their rabbinical tradition. All dust which comes from the land of the Gentiles is reckoned by us as the rottenness of a dead carcass. And of these two, the land of Gentiles, and a field in which there is a grave, it is decreed that they defile by touching and by carrying Again, the dust of a field in which is a grave and the dust without the land of Israel, which comes along with an herb, are unclean. And so they would shake the dust off their feet when they would come, signifying that they have just come from an unclean place, almost like they had come from a grave. How do you sense what the Lord is signifying by shake the dust off of your feet? And this is especially important because these are Jews that they're ministering to, right? And what the Lord is saying, you don't receive me. You don't receive the gospel. You are an unclean thing. And you are as a dead man. And you are as one condemned. You are under judgment and you are counted as heathen. The only thing, friends, that matters in God's eyes is not whether you are Jew or Greek, but whether you are in Christ. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Romans two twenty-eight through 29. And so, as I have said, this seems to be a particularly Jewish symbol. And it seems to have ended after, and this is interesting if you look at the book of Acts, after the ministry to the Jews was concluded, it seems to have ceased. Paul exercised the shaking of the dust off of his feet and clothing to signify judgment twice. In Acts 13.51, after he and Barnabas were persecuted by the Jews in Antioch, we read, but they shook off the dust off their feet against them and came unto Iconium. But the most sobering of all for the Jews was Acts 18.6. Consider Paul's words in Corinth to the Jews when he turns his ministry to the Gentiles. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment, it's that same action, and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. Do you see that? From henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. I go to the Gentiles. What a judgment that is from God. What a sentence Jesus passed against the Jews of that time, silencing the preaching of the gospel to them. That's a terrible thing, friends. Friends, when you see little or no gospel preaching, then going back to our introduction, that is a sign of God's displeasure. But if you sit under regular gospel preaching, you need to rejoice and bless the Lord for that. That is the sign of God's pleasure, of God's favor. But as I brought up Acts 18 and the Jews' rejection of Christ at the time, I just want to put this here, that we do anticipate the Jews turning to their Lord in the future. Romans 11 signifies and teaches that. But for a time, the Lord has kept them in their blindness. Why? That they would be provoked to jealousy at the Gentiles who are coming into their Messiah. So regularly pray, not just for gospel laborers, but also that the Jews, God's ancient people, would return to him and that we would send missionaries to them. Laborers in view of Christ's promise. Well, then, uh, I also want to say in Matthew's gospel, if you want further proof of the, what this signifies, uh, shaking the dust off the feet is very clear as judgment. After instructing them in Matthew ten fifteen, Jesus said, after saying, uh, uh, "Shake the dust off your feet." He said, "Verily, truly, I say unto you." It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Boys and girls, do you remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? He rained down fire and brimstone upon it, didn't he? Utterly decimating it. He says it will be worse for those who reject the gospel when it is preached to them than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah never had the privilege, friends, and this is a privilege of hearing Christ crucified preach to them. Never heard the words of clemency. Turn from your wicked way, turn to Christ, and you will be saved from all of your evil doings. They never heard that. And that's why he says it'll be worse for any city that rejects the blessed gospel of Christ. Now, this has implications for our city. And even us being seated here right now, Leonard Ravenhill once wrote a book on revival and the title just grabs your attention and it's Sodom had no Bible. Sodom had no Bible. Friends, when there is a gospel light, when there is a gospel witness in a town and the people pay no heed to it, that is a frightening thing. Sodom had no Bible. But Fairview, Texas, Dallas, Texas, Washington, D.C., Euless, Bedford, Washington, D.C. even has a Bible museum now. And they reject the Bible. That is a terrifying thing, friends. It will be worse on the day of judgment, lest the Lord revives us, than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a terrible thing. But it's not just cities. It's the same truth that applies to each of you who are listening to the gospel now. I said it's a privilege, but it's a double-edged sword. Because having heard Christ and Him crucified for all your evil, if you reject Him, right? What a thing that is. It was better for Sodom on that day. This is why the, the Lord Jesus Christ, after a man spends three years with Him, and rejects the gospel and rejects the person of Christ. He says it would have been better if Judas had never been born. What will happen to you on the day of judgment if you turn from Christ? It's a frightening thought. The Lord is calling you sinner. Come and be forgiven. Come, find refuge in me. Or you will, can you imagine this, for an eternity Envying Sodom and Gomorrah. So, why refuse his mercy today? Take refuge in the everlasting arms of Jesus that are held out. You know, we talked about men who are being, uh, uh, who run without being sent. Well, he commissioned me at presbytery that he would plead through me to you, a sinner. This is not me pleading. This is the word of God, Jesus Christ pleading with you all. Turn to him and live. Why perish? Don't stop up your ears as so many have. Do not regret for eternity that you never fled to Christ. All he says is come and take without price. I say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to thee, which is Christ in the preaching of the gospel. So we conclude with verse 6. And they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel, the good news and healing Everywhere. In the same way, let us be promiscuous with the gospel message congregation. Let us resolve to go everywhere as God wills. Let us proclaim the good news. For the news that you have is very good indeed. If the angels would proclaim glad tidings of great joy at the birth of the Savior. Angels who don't need salvation, mind you. Why are we so cold in proclaiming the good news. We have great tidings of great joy for the nations. Consider the harvest just in our backyard. We don't have to go to Africa. We have 8 million souls in the DFW Metroplex. How few of them have heard the gospel proclaimed? You can find a Bible in every bookstore in the Metroplex. But how many will read it? And how many have heard it preached to them in truth. So pray for more laborers to go into the harvest and for churches like ours to awake out of slumber. That we would feel the pressing reality that souls are going to hell. We have to ask, if the Lord is compassionate when He looks on the multitudes, where is our compassion? And we ourselves have received His compassion. How terrible it is that we don't have a care that others are going without that same compassion. Are we satisfied that the better portion of eight million souls in our backyard are going to hell? What a terrible thought if we are. Pray for laborers to be sent then and consider seriously boys and men if you are called to the ministry. The harvest is white. The laborers are few, even in his day. So pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to raise up men to hold forth Christ's compassion. We'll leave Luke there for today. If able, please rise for prayer. O Lord of the harvest, we come before you, we who have received mercy, we who have had the compassion of Christ poured on our hearts, and we pray and plead for more laborers to be sent, O God. Help us to have a care to send men into the field. Not that our churches may grow and be bustling places, but that you would snatch souls from hell, that the work of the devil would be smashed, and that the world would be turned to Christ, that Christ would be glorified, and that all men from, um, from sea to sea would praise and bless the Savior. Father, what a thing it is to remember that Sodom had no Bible. And so would you help us who have received the Bible to treasure it first and foremost, to flee to the Christ. He said, uh, search the scriptures. And yet we don't search the scriptures that testify of him. And we are unwilling, as we heard last week, to come to him, that we might have eternal life. Make all of us here willing to come to the Savior. May your Spirit move through the preaching of the Word, Father, to call all men to yourself. And so, Father, for the sake of the glory of God and the sake of our town, Father, we pray that you would revive our souls, that you would pour out your Spirit, and you would send men into the harvest, of uh, uh, men who would preach the same message, not to tickle ears, not to scratch an itch for men, but instead to preach... Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We ask this for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.